Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are going to look this morning back at a book that I absolutely love, which is the book of Ecclesiastes. We taught through this several years ago, actually more like four or five years ago. Everything's a few years, a few months. (laughs) And I am always reminded by Tricia very specifically (laughs) that I tend to round up or down depending on how it suits me. Did I say that out loud? Anyway, it <laughs> is uh, my thing, I guess. Um, no, I love a book of Ecclesiastes. I would highly, highly recommend that every one of us read through this book at, at least once a year. It is such a clarifying book. Such a, it's a mysterious book, at least it was to me before we taught through it, and, and the richness of it, the, the message of it, the power of it is, um, is just... It is a wonderful book, and so I wanted us to look at that this morning uh, once again. Uh, for those of you who have been here a while, you, you may remember some of these things, but uh, to me this is just such a, such a rich reminder. Ian Provan, in his commentary on this book, writes that one of his most vivid memories as a young student at university was standing at a party watching an extremely brilliant uh, philosophy student who was majoring in, in this uh, all the you know all the all the uh, wisdom of the world uh, watching this student sit down with a bottle of vodka in his hand rhythmically banging his head against the wall this young sharp mind had thought deeply about life he thought about its purpose its meaning and he'd apparently come to understand what solomon is going to teach us in these opening chapters of ecclesiastes and that is that life under the sun Life under the sun is the merest of breaths, and all of our earthly pursuits, in the end, offer up no real or lasting gain. For that philosophy student, his realization that life under the sun offered no profit left him slumped over, left him inebriated, left him wondering, what is the point of it all? And that's exactly the question that Solomon wants us to consider in these opening chapters of the book. In fact, he he gets right into it in chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, what advantage or what profit does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? This is the, the burning question. Where is the gain? What's left over when it's all said and done? The profit, the advantage. Where is it in all that we do in this life? And what he uncovers in these opening uh, sections, uh, if it were not for the Holy Spirit within us, would certainly be a temptation, like that philosophy student, to bang our head against the wall. It it is um, in chapter 1 and verses 4 to 11, the physical universe itself testifies to the fact that the world we live in is one of continual motion without lasting achievement. If you look at the opening verses in verse 4, he says, a generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing hard toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular course, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. In verse 9, he says, That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. 
In other words, round and round, he says it goes. Day after day, creation testifies year after year, century after century. Everything is in an endless cycle, and in the end, nothing ultimately changes. But not only does nature testify to the breathiness or the fleetingness of life, but Solomon himself begins to testify to this reality by appealing to what can be known from human experience. And he, he begins to do that in verses 12 and into chapter, uh, of chapter 1 and all the way into chapter 2. He says, I, he calls himself the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, verse 13, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under the sun. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. And so beginning in verse 12, all the way down to chapter 2 and verse 23, Solomon describes his careful and what will ultimately be seen as a comprehensive searching out of all that life has to offer, to see, is there gain to be found somewhere in this life? And if any, he says, I I will find it. And so with focus, with discipline, by means of his God-given powers of wisdom, he sets his mind, beginning in verse 14, to uh, investigate the answer to his opening question, where is the gain to be found? And um, he sets out at first to discover if the pursuit of wisdom holds any hope of gain, of profit. He says, you know, maybe perhaps uh, intellectual knowledge and learning and um, understanding, that's the key to making a permanent impression on the world and securing, like, lasting gain. And so he chased that as far as he could possibly chase it. But as we'll see, in the end, he found that really was just a dead-end street. Verse 17, he says, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realize that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom, he says, there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. What he discovered was that the more wisdom uh, he had, the more pain and grief he had. Uh, that the pretty soon, he says, apart from God's word, you end up banging your head against the wall like that like that student in university, because of the anguish and the hopelessness of it all. And so then he shifts gears in chapter 2. He's the king, right? He can do that. As a king, he can do anything he pleases. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he decides to test to see if, if the pursuit of fun, if the pursuit of pleasure brings any lasting profit to his life. And so he, he lived it up. He chased after the good life. Superficial joys, profound joys, it didn't matter. He chased after it all to see if life under the sun had anything to offer. And he concludes, he said, at the end of verse 1, enjoy yourself. And he says, and behold, it too was futility. And I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? He goes, in the end, in searching for gain in pleasure, he says, proved to be elusive. So then he moved on to something else. In verse 3, he, he moved on to wine. He fled rationality by drinking until he took hold of folly. He said, until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. But that got him nowhere. And so he poured himself into more noble pursuits in verses 4 to 6, constructing large works. He built built houses, he planted vineyards, he dug ponds. He basically tried to create a little slice of heaven on earth for himself. 
And, the, and he was able to do that, verses 7 and 8 tell us, because he was able to undertake uh, all of this building enterprise because of his immense wealth. He pursued wealth. He achieved wealth. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I also collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. Whether it was the mass, through massive taxation or through the tribute of other nations filling the coffers of Israel's um, uh, uh, Israel's banks there. Solomon was one seriously wealthy man. And when you're powerful and you're rich, as Song of Solomon says, and you're handsome like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, it should come as no surprise that Solomon chased after women. Verse 8, the end, he says, I provide for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Solomon pursued sexual gratification to see if it held the key to secure real gain. In other words, as we look at these opening verses, whatever the king wanted to pursue, he pursued it. Verse 9, he says, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my, my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Nothing is denied. Nothing in his life is, withheld, is held back. Every pursuit, he says, was carefully evaluated by means of God-given wisdom. And what is his assessment of it all? Verse 11, Thus I considered all my activities, which my hand had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun." He says the ultimate objects of his search, profit, which is gain, lasting gain, and meaning were nowhere to be found. And there's no equivocation here as, you, as he gets into this. There's no hedging. He's saying there is no lasting gain from anything that he did, not one thing. And desperate for some kind of gain, some kind of profit. He even took a second look at wisdom again, and we see that in verses 12 to uh, 16 of chapter 2. And the best he could squeeze out of it was that there was some relative value to wisdom. Relatively. Because in the end, he says, the wise and the fool all suffer the same end, death. He says, life under the sun is all vanity. It's all breath and chasing after the wind, and there is no gain. And so he ends this uh, second look at wisdom with these discouraging words in verse 17. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. He says, I hated life. It seemed evil to him, grievous, because everything he, everything he chased after, he discovered was transitory. Everything he chased after was elusive. Now, at this point, you might be asking yourself, why are we looking at this text as we're about to turn the page on a new year? Right? Why aren't we looking at something hopeful? Why aren't we looking at something uh, uh, you know, aspirational? Isn't this a time for setting goals? Isn't this the time for, um, uh, for dreaming big about the future? I mean, maybe 2023 wasn't the best year for some of us. 
Um, maybe in some ways, 2023 was downright disappointing. Um, last year, around this time, you might have had grand plans for how you're going to save more money and you were going to get in better shape and you were going to pursue that other job or read more or pray more or deepen your connection to Christ's church and so on and so forth. Maybe you had big plans for this year, but here we are. It's literally the last day of the year and maybe a lot of those things have fallen short of the mark, maybe even completely uh, failed to meet your expectations. But, like a true Redskins Commanders fan, the expectations are high for next year. For many of us, that's how we approach the new year, right? Next year, next year is when my ship is coming in. And what Solomon and the entire book of Ecclesiastes is meant to teach us is this. He teaches us to live the life God's given you now instead of longing for the life you want to have but actually can't control at all. The, the message of Ecclesiastes is to live the life that God has given you now instead of longing for the life you want but actually have no ability to control at all. Ecclesiastes teaches us that life on this side of glory in this fallen world is a gift and not the source of eternal gain. So we need to stop expecting more out of this life and out of this world than God intends for us to receive from it. Only then, only then will we truly be wise. Only then will we truly be heavenly minded. Only then will we truly be content. Solomon in these opening chapters is trying to destroy our delusions about life in order to rebuild them in God's image. But Solomon realizes there might be a few among us who are holdouts, who are not quite ready to wave the white flag and to acknowledge that, um, that all is vanity, all is breath. And so as we look at verses 18 to 20. Six this morning, Solomon invites us to consider one final pursuit with him. He wants every one of us to be sure, to be absolutely sure there is no gain to be found in this world. And then finally, in the last two verses of our section, he shows us a glimmer of light along the horizon. His investigation, Solomon's investigation into what life has to offer has carried uh, all his readers along with him in pursuit of wisdom, in pursuit of pleasure, in pursuit of wine, in pursuit of works, in, in pursuit of wealth, women, and he even looks back at wisdom a second time, and it's all yielded no gain. But someone might theorize, well, maybe, maybe the gain in life isn't found in pursuing wealth for yourself. Um, maybe it's all about securing gain for others out in the world, for, maybe for your, your children or your grandchildren. Maybe the search for permanence has come up short because it's too self-focused, right? I want pleasure, I want money, I want this and that. He's implicitly asked, uh, asking here and answering directly, what gain is there to be found in laboring for those who come after you? Remember, Solomon is trying to destroy our delusions about life in order to rebuild them in God's image. And so he can't start to rebuild until he's torn down the whole structure that existed before. And so in verses 18 to 23, he knocks down the last wall before he begins to lay a new foundation in verses 24 and 26. 
And we can break the text down into two parts, the painful task of toil in verses 18 to 23 and the precious gifts of God in verses 24 to 26. Beginning in verse 18 all the way down through verse 23, we see the painful task of toil. Solomon writes, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? And yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun." When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity." Now, you'll notice here in um, verse 18, he speaks of toil uh, or labor. Uh, ESV, I think, translates it toil, NAS is labor. It's one of these common words that's used throughout Ecclesiastes, and it's simply a common word for work, just talking about work. Building, tilling the ground, earning your way in the world, providing for yourselves, providing for others. It's, it's just work. And interestingly, it's also translated some places as trouble, which very much points back to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall and the curse that God placed upon Adam and the physical universe because of their disobedience in the garden. Chapter 17 of Genesis 3, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, same word, you will eat of it all the days of your life. So work, by God's design initially, was not meant to be burdensome. It was not meant to be unproductive. But God designed work to be fulfilling. He designed work initially to be fruitful. But because of sin, work, by and large, God says is going to be exhausting. Work is going to be laborious. And, uh, and so the ESV translates it, I think rightly, as toil. And so Solomon is searching for gain. And chapter 2 tells us that wealth and wisdom have come up as dead-end trails. He says, maybe there's some lasting value in laying up treasure for others. Maybe there's some value in laying up treasure for our children or, or just another generation. And he, he works hard, and, and then he dies. He says, so what happens to my wealth after I die? And so he tells us very plainly, Solomon's conclusion on the matter begins right from the get-go in verse 18. I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. The pattern that you see as you read through Ecclesiastes is Solomon will often state his conclusion, and then he'll give his reasons after for why he came to that conclusion. And we see him doing that here. He points out that he can spend his whole life exerting himself, working, for his daily bread and everything else. And by God's kindness, he can even be successful at it. He can be wealthy. Uh, he can have a lot. He, he could amass a pretty decent fortune. And then before he even realizes, because life is a mere breath, he, he's dead. And then he has to leave it to someone else. 
And uh, verse 18 is in the indefinite in the original language. It says, to whomever, to leave it to the man, but it literally says, leave it to whomever will come after me. He says, I have no choice but to leave all my hard-earned work to someone else. Psalm 39 and verse 6 says, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He, speaking of man, he amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. This is, this is The psalmist is speaking, um, is speaking like Solomon. A psalm, uh, later on in chapter 5 and verse 15, he says, as, as he had come from his mother's womb, man, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor he can carry in his hands. He says, when I understood all of that, when I understood that reality, I hated all the fruits of my labors. It's the same thing he says back in chapter uh, uh, 2 and verse 17. The same problem is in the previous section has popped up again, and that is death. Death. The transitory nature of life under the sun is the great equalizer. It's the great equalizer, and yet, he says, gain continues to be elusive. In the previous section, wisdom was rendered inert by death, and here, in verses 18 and following, work and wealth are rendered inert by death. Why does this bother him so much? Why does it make him loathe his work? Well, he gives two reasons here in the text. First, he has no idea whether the person who inherits his wealth is going to be a wise person or a fool. You see that in verse 19. Who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. He says, this is vanity. He says, I may work diligently and wisely and invest you know, smartly through my whole life, planning, investing, sacrificing, to get to the outcome that I want. But when I die, I will give every last dime of that and every other thing to someone else, and that person might be a fool and just waste it all. And that was absolutely the case when you look at Solomon's life. Rehoboam and all his young, prideful friends took over, and no time at all, and no time at all, they split the kingdom. He took all, Rehoboam took all that David and Solomon had expended themselves to acquire in, in faithfulness to the Lord, and they flushed it all in a matter of one crisis. He says, uh, verse 19, who knows? He phrases what he says there in verse 19 in the form of a question to, to draw emphasis to the fact that nobody, even Solomon himself, knows the answer to this question. He cannot be sure, no matter how many um, precautions he takes, he cannot be sure that the person who comes after him will do anything wise with what he's given them. But the fact that he has to forfeit the fruits of his labor to a fool isn't the only reason that he's discouraged. In fact, he's more than discouraged. He begins to fill up with despair you see that in verse 20. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. At this point, he moves from hating life to outright hopelessness. The absence of anything that remains in any pursuit he, pursu he chases after brings him to the brink of hopelessness. He is completely disillusioned. Everywhere he turns, life leads him down a dead-end street. 
no matter what he chases after. He says there's no gain to be found in leaving an inheritance. First, because I don't know whether it'll fall into the hands of a fool or a wise man. But also, he says, it it's bothers him because the person who receives it didn't earn it and they don't deserve it. Look at verse 21. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill, then he gives his legacy or his share to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. Notice the anecdote. He describes this person. It's kind of a nondescript, an industrious person who works with great skill, enjoys great success in this life, and, and then dies. And somehow this fortunate person who's amassed great wealth ends up handing it off to someone who had no part in earning it. It's very nonspecific, which seems to imply that perhaps the man's fortune didn't actually follow the normal process of inheritance that maybe it, it kind of fell into the hands of someone else. Solomon says, that's wrong. It's not fair. That's why he says, this too is vanity and a great evil. It's unjust. And if you've ever talked to an estate planning lawyer, they can tell you story after story after story of random estranged family members who swoop in like vultures after someone else passes away and seek to gobble up inheritances. And Solomon says, this is what I have seen, and it's completely wrong. What's the bottom line? What's the bottom line? Verse 22, For what does a man get in all his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity. He says, what, what, what's the gain to be found in this painful task of work that you and I are wearing ourselves down to the bone for? Because as far as I can tell, he says, there's no rest for the weary, day or night. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is the same thing he's been saying from the beginning. There is no gain. There is no profit he says in verse 17, back in 17, everything is futility and striving after wind. He says it in verse 11 of chapter 2, behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. He says it in chapter 1 and verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So the question that the text begs of us is, do you believe Solomon yet? Do you believe him? Do you believe him when he says that chasing after all this life has to offer, to try and find meaning, to try and find satisfaction, to try and make some kind of lasting impression, do you believe that that is chasing after the wind? Because Solomon, as he's contemplated all this, has begun to fill up with despair. And so as we read the text, you know, we're asked to consider, you know, to feel that. We're meant to feel the weight of his, his hopelessness, to feel the weight of his, his concern. This is a low point, as you read through this, this is a low point for him, maybe one of the lowest of his incredible life. And so the text asks us, do you feel what the preacher feels here? And if you can't, or if you're struggling to relate to that, 
Perhaps it's because you have given your soul over to one or all of the distractions and diversions to avoid looking death squarely in the eye. How many people that you know, how many believers that you've run into, desperately try to live in a bubble they think will never burst? As one commentator uh, aptly illustrated, he says, how do you hide a giant hole in the middle of a wall? He says, you wallpaper over it with a busy pattern to distract yourself. How, do, how in the world, he said, do you hide a rhinoceros? Easy, he said, cover it with a million mice. Multiple diversions. Solomon here in the text doesn't want us to be distracted. He doesn't want us to be diverted. But he wants us to think deeply. To think deeply about the breathiness of life. To think deeply about the elusiveness of life under the sun. And to consider the reality of our, of our death. This is really part of his, his concern. Why is this so important to him? Why does he want us to... Con- in fact, in chapter 7, he actually says that it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of weeping. Why does he want us to consider death? And the reason he wants us to think about it and is because death reorients us to our limitations as creatures. The reality of our death orients us to re- that we are created by God. And it, what it does is it gives us the power of the proper perspective, which we need. And what is that proper perspective? If life's not about controlling all the things around us in this world for gain, the question becomes, what is the proper perspective? How then shall we live as believers? And that leads into our second point. And that is the precious gifts from God in verses 24 to 26. After all that Solomon has done in these opening chapters, to chase after gain, to search out and to research the the quest for gain, after he's brought us low into what you might call the valley of vanity and stripped away all of our delusions and all of our illusions about life under the sun, only now, here in verse 24, are we prepared to receive the light of God's wisdom in these final verses. Notice what he says in verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Notice the opening uh, formula there in verse 24. There is nothing better. It's a formula that Solomon will use again in chapter 3 and again in chapter 8. And each time that he uses this formula, this there is nothing better, what follows is Solomon's prescription for living in a fallen world. Remember, wisdom literature, which is what Ecclesiastes is, wisdom literature doesn't deal uh, with um, absolutes as much as it deals with relatives. It's not meant, uh, in other words, it's, it's meant to impart skill Wisdom is meant to impart skill for godly living. So it it speaks of things in terms of better or worse, not do or don't, not can and can't. So it's, it's it's about relative goodness, relative, you know, foolishness. And so here we see him doing that here. There is nothing better 
for a man than to eat and to drink. In verse 24, Solomon tells us for the first time how we're to think about and to make the most of our lives in this world. It's not about pursuing wisdom. It's not about pursuing pleasure. It's not about your work, your wealth, physical gratification. It's not even about leaving a legacy or a fortune for future generations to fall into possession of. He says it's about joyfully receiving the good things God's given us in this world as a gift. Eating and drinking simply speaks of the basic necessities of life, the various physical comforts and provisions that God created in this world for us to enjoy. Good food, good drink, fellowship with a good friend, a warm bed, a hot shower. I love a hot shower. Watching a ball game, afternoon on the lake fishing, a restful nap, beautiful music, a family vacation, sleeping in on Saturday morning, sleeping in on Sunday morning. Nobody does that. (laughs) A spouse's embrace, playing with your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, fill in the blank. These are the things that God has given us. And not only does he single out eating and drinking, he also says we're to find joy in our work. Literally to cause ourselves, he says in verse 24, to cause ourselves to see that our labor is good. He advocates here in verse 24, taking yourself in hand and preaching to yourself that our work is also a gift from God that we're to engage in joyfully. Whatever that work is that God's given you to do. It doesn't have to be in the ho- outside of the home. It can be in your home. It doesn't have to be as a, as a uh, person of working age. You could be retired, but you still have work to do. But the world says, well, we eat and drink to keep our bodies fueled up to go out there and work and make more money and get more stuff. And normally we work not just to make a living, but we also, many work to make a name for themselves and to find lasting satisfaction, to to rise the corporate ranks, to take on more responsibility, to get that next thing. And Solomon says, if that's how you're going through life, brother, sister, it's all transitory and it's all chasing after the wind. Instead of chasing after these gifts as a means to something greater, some false god that you've erected in your heart, Solomon says, stop and just live inside the gifts themselves. See God's hand in them. The enjoyment of God's gifts is their own reward. God's gifts, whatever he gives us, whether that's much, whether he gives us much or gives us little, those things are not stepping stones to greater things. They don't help us rule the world. They don't help us control our destiny. They don't help us lay hold of gain. They are blessings to be received with a thankful heart. And with that, Solomon drills down to his thesis for the whole book. And that is that life is a gift, not gain. Life is a gift, not gain. It's interesting, um, up until verse 24, God has been completely out of the picture. You notice that? God has completely absent from Solomon's perspective up until verse 24. But when you get to verse 24, suddenly God is mentioned three times. The emphasis here is on God's giving. God gives food and drink and work. God gives enjoyment. God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. 
Up to verse 23, it was just me, myself, and I. Biting, scratching, clawing to try and control the world for gain. But a proper perspective, Solomon says, is one that acknowledges that everything, everything from the most far-reaching of plans to the smallest of details is under the control of our sovereign God. That's what he says in verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? The obvious answer is no one. We can't truly live the way God's designed until we acknowledge that he is, in fact, the hand behind every good and perfect gift and everything else that he does in our lives. And to reinforce our need for this Godward perspective, to live wisely in this sin-cursed world, he ends in verse 26, reminding us how God relates to the only two categories of people in the world. There's only two categories of people in the world, those who fear and follow him and those who refuse to do so. Look at verse 26. For to the person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Those who fear him, those who follow him. This is just Old Testament speak for someone who has faith in Yahweh, the one who is a believer. He says, the one who is, he calls them the one who is good in his sight. It's not that they're inherently good, it's that they are good because of the righteousness they have from God to be received by faith. He reminds us that his gifts are wisdom, knowledge, joy, are true wisdom, true knowledge, true joy. He says to those who refuse to fear and follow him, he calls them the sinner. This is the one who has rejected God and his revelation. He gives them the futile task, he says, of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. The terms gathering and collecting picture um, acquiring. And so he says the unbeliever is occupying their whole lives, amassing possessions, projects, ideas, friends, fame, and all the other stuff this world has to offer. But in the end, it's all vanity, he says, and striving after wind. When they die, they lose it all. And there's no eternal reward waiting for them, only judgment. Jesus echoes um, Solomon's thinking in the Gospels. If you look at Luke chapter 8 and verse 18, he says, Jesus says, so take care how you listen, speaking of God's word, for whoever has what truly matters to him, more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Life he says, is not a way to secure lasting gain, but a gift from God to be joyfully received. Think about what men will, and women in this world will do for gain. Think about the things that they will sacrifice. Think about the people they will step on. Think about the integrity that they will forfeit. Think about, we're coming up on election year, think about what they will say to get a vote. For what? For what? They could be the king of the universe. And in two generations, no one will know their name. For what? And Solomon's point is, that's Solomon's point. It's, there's nothing to be gained. And so with these words then, he ends this chapters 1 and 2, uh, 
rising up out of the valley of vanity. And in chapters 3 and following, he's going to lead us to the path of true wisdom as you read through the book. The Battle of Okinawa, World War II, was one of the most horrific battles of the entire war. Nearly 77,000 Japanese soldiers and nearly 144,000 civilians, roughly a third of the island's population, were killed. Despite being outnumbered five to one, the battle raged on for 82 days, in large part because of the refusal of the Japanese and the Okinawan civilians to, to raise the white flag to surrender. Mark Ely and Alistair McLaughlin's translated work, Descent into Hell, in that book, the writers pulled together numerous first-hand accounts given by Japanese soldiers and civilians after the war to try and understand how and why so many were willing to die, why were so many willing to commit suicide rather than surrender when they were outmanned and they were outgunned. And uh, what these authors managed to um, discover by analyzing the accounts was that decades of uh, militaristic and nationalistic rhetoric taught to these people had so warped the minds of the soldiers and the young people on the island that they believed if they fell into the Americans' hands, American soldiers would commit all kinds of atrocities against them. And so they convinced themselves that it was better to fight to the death or to even take their own life than to surrender. But here's the thing. It was a delusion. It was a delusion. As, as a whole, on the whole, evidence shows that Americans took care of the prisoners, military and civilian, and they did so relatively well. One, one uh, survivor was quoted as saying, I hated and feared those Americans. One survivor uh, recalls, he says, but they treated me with great care and kindness while my classmates and my teachers left me behind. You see, because so many soldiers and civilians on the island believed this delusion, the only good outcome that they could conceive of was to refuse surrender and to fight to the death. And by doing so, they literally cut themselves off from a full and rewarding life. And beloved, there are some in our midst this morning that also believe a delusion. They believe the delusion that this world has real gain to be found in it. And they have been so taught, discipled by the world we live in, to think that your priorities, pursuits, decisions are all driven by the search for gain. And you're chasing after knowledge, and you're chasing after sensuality, and you're chasing after career or money or sexual fulfillment or some kind of inheritance for posterity, and you think that's going to bring you real profit. And because you're clinging to this false belief, even clinging to it to the bitter end, you refuse to surrender to the sovereign of the universe who offers terms of peace and prosperity through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Because you refuse to surrender, you are cutting yourself off from receiving and enjoying the good gifts he extends to all who fear him and all who follow him. David says in Psalm 16, verse 11, in his presence, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, Lord, there are pleasures forever. And so 
this text really gives us perspective for the new year. It gives us perspective for the new year to, to think rightly about what this world can offer us and what we can expect from it in return. And if you're not in Christ this morning, the text begs of you to come to him, to turn from everything that dishonors him, and with simple childlike trust to wave the white flag and come and receive his care and his kindness. God offers forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ, peace, grace, wisdom, true knowledge, unshakable joy, and the sure hope of eternal life to all who take up their cross and follow him. And Solomon comes to the same conclusion at the end of the book. The conclusion, he said, when all has been heard, is fear God, keep his commandments. He says, because this applies to every person. Fear God, we said, is just Old Testament speak for faith toward God. Fear him, humble yourself before him, follow him. And then, having humbled yourself, keep his commandments. And he says, all the good things in life we get to enjoy, we can be thankful for, and not only in this life, in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this perspective. As we turn the page on a new year, it's so easy to think that, that next year is going to be the one. Next year is when we'll finally get that extra money that we need to be feel comfortable. Next year will be when we get that promotion when we really have arrived. Next year will be the year when we get married. Next year will be the year when we graduate. Next year will be the year, next year, next year, and so forth. Lord, help us to remember that whatever your hand brings to us, we can receive with a thankful heart. And help us to understand what this life has to offer. It's not that this life isn't full of wonderful things, Lord, it is. You've given them to us. But we need to recognize that they come from your hand. Help us to be content. Help us to love you more, to fear you, to keep your commandments. And help us to walk steadfastly with you. Because the scripture says there is a crown of righteousness laid up for those who persevere faithfully to the end. And Lord, the real gain is to be found not in this life, but in the life to come. May we have that perspective today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.